All right. I'm going to start this, this morning's sermon with a spoiler alert. I'm going to ruin just about every spy movie that you could ever watch. I'm going to tell you the plot and the ending. All right, you ready? All right. The movie starts with the spy being told never to get romantically involved um, with a woman so that they can keep themselves from becoming emotionally attached um, and being compromised by their love. Right. The spy then meets this woman who, despite his very best efforts, she, she wins his heart. All right, and here's where the unexpected happens. Here's the twist. The enemy discovers that this, this relationship has happened, and he captures the woman, and he uses her as a lure to, to trap the spy. All right, the rest of the movie is basically made up of the spy making really ill-advised decisions and sometimes even traitorous decisions uh, to try to get her back. And here's the spoiler. At the end of the day, he gets her back. The world as we know it may have been destroyed, but he has saved that woman. All right, so there. I either just ruined every spy movie ever for you, or I saved you a bunch of time. Either way, you're welcome. All right. <laughs> the title of today's sermon is Undivided Devotion to the Lord. It's important that I get that out there really early because um, it's going to be the center of everything that we talk about today. And it'd be really easy to kind of lose track um, in all of the details of this passage. But you see that phrase, undivided devotion to the Lord, uh, in verse 35. And we will get there. Um, but it's going to be important for us to keep our minds centered on that phrase. Um, we circled a, a bit around that idea of, of undivided devotion to the Lord last week. Um, when Paul told us to lead the life that, that the Lord has assigned us to and to which God has called us. Um, but today he's going to get all up in our business. And, and before we get started, I just want to take a minute and, and pray um, over this passage. Father, um, just in thinking through this passage and the sermon that you put on my heart, Father, I, I'm honestly, um, just full honesty, I'm, I'm nervous about this one, Father. Not about standing here in front of the camera, but about, about the context of this passage and, and what, it, what it means for my life, what it means for our life at Redeemer. Um, Father, it's, it's calling us to something that is, um, yeah, it's not common. It's not something that we see um, very frequently in, in our lives, in our world, even in our churches. And so, Father, I just pray for your grace and your mercy on us this morning as, as we look at this passage and the weight that it brings to us. And I pray that, the weight of, that, that your spirit would bring that weight to sit upon us and it would, it would press us and mold us more into, um, into the likeness of Jesus. So, Father, do what only you can do. Send your spirit to work among us um, and to, to bring light to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. In verse 25, you see the words, now concerning the betrothed. All right. And, and that is, that's an indication that Paul is responding to a question 
that the Corinthian church had sent to him. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter 7, and when Brian preached on it, Paul writes this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So the Corinthian church had asked him um, for his perspective um, on, on you know, whether or not they should, um, should be getting married or continuing a marriage or, or um, something to that effect. And, and Brian laid out for us the answer was both yes and no. And I'm not going to go into detail about all of that. You can go back and listen to his sermon. It is on the website. But we see the same pattern here as in verse 1, this, this now concerning. And it's just an indication that this is a response. In this instance, uh, the Corinthians were asking about the value of getting married. And Paul is going to give his response to that question. His answer is going to be consistent with the worldview that he's had uh, throughout the letter, but it's, it's going to be way different than anyone would have expected. And it's going to flow directly out of what we were talking about last week. Before we get straight into this, we need to understand a little bit about the, the laws and the customs in the Roman Empire at that time. Uh, as Rome transitioned from being a republic to being an empire, when they had um, you know, the, the Caesars, the, em- the emperors, um, marriage and remarriage had become less frequent, and the citizen birth rate had fallen. Okay? And that, that, that was particularly the case among um, the more elite in society, the, the upper class. And that was, that was concerning for Roman leadership. To combat that trend, the Emperor Augustus issued a new legislation which made it not just a moral duty, but an actual legal obligation for men and women to get married and have children, and for divorcees, widows, or widowers to remarry. There, there were actually taxes imposed for any man between 25 and 60, and for any woman between 20 and 50 who was not married. If, you're, if you had already had three children, then, then you'd be exempt from that. You had um, you know, more than replaced yourself uh, in society. Um, but if you hadn't followed the law up to the point of that, that upper limit, uh, that 60 for men or, or 50 for women, then those taxes continued for the rest of your life. So in light of all of that, when the Corinthian church is asking Paul about marriage, uh, it, it isn't just a question about you know, his preference or the pros and cons of marriage. It's actually a, a question of, should we engage in civil disobedience here? Should we go against what the government is requiring us? Right, let, me, let me address the, the rest of verse 25 before we get into the meat of the text. Verse 25 says this, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. All right, this, this can, can cause a little bit of confusion. Is, is God's word inerrant? Is it not? Can we, is this just Paul in God's word giving his, his opinion? What's going on? Okay, so here's what he's doing. Paul is responding to this question, but unlike other topics that he has covered, he can't point to, to any place where Jesus addressed this specific command directly. Uh, this specific question directly. And, and he's not going to give us, Paul's not going to give us a hard yes or no in either direction. He's not going to land hard and give us a, you have to do this. But as one inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words, one given wisdom from the Holy Spirit as an authoritative apostle, um, he's going to give his judgment on this matter. 
and his judgment is authoritative for us because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So let's look at Paul's response. What does he say? We're going to look at uh, verses 26 through 31. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. All right, in this section of, of Scripture, there are three phrases that, that stand out that I want us to, to focus on. The first one is present distress. The second one is the appointed time has grown very short. And the third one is the present form of this world is passing away. You see those in verses 26, 29, and 31, respectively. So based on some present distress, something happening at the time, we, we don't know exactly what it is, Paul says it's good for a person to remain as he is. Uh, people have speculated and, and attempted to tie it to events um, or to the words of Jesus in Luke 21 or Mark 13. But at the end of the day, we don't really know for sure what it is. Um, and that means that the specifics about which he's writing don't really matter. Something going wrong? No. Okay, we're good. Sorry about that. Anytime with the technology, it gets a little nerve-wracking, so um, there, there are a number of things that can go wrong. Sorry about that. Um, I do want to make sure got my mic's on. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. But at the end of the day, no matter what was going on, we, don't, we, don't, we aren't really f sure what's going on. It, it could have been... Uh, it could have been any number of things. And, and, but what this means is that the specifics of what was going on aren't, aren't really that important, or Paul would have told us. And, and it also means that um, just because we're in a different context, it doesn't mean that these words don't apply to us. They do apply. And what we know is that there was something going on which Paul points to as a reason for them to stay as they were. On the surface, Paul is going to make it seem that marriage is the worst. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Okay, sounds great, right? And then he basically goes on to say, you're in sin for getting, marriage, for getting married, but those who marry are going to have trouble. Can I, can I please spare you from those troubles? Like he's just, it's just a shining endorsement for marriage from Paul, right? In verse 29, he explains himself. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. And I'm really glad he does this. He knows that his comments in, in verse 27 and 28 would be misunderstood. And so he's going to clarify, kind of. Let's take a look. Verse 29 through 31. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Hey, 
Paul here seems to leave the marriage conversation altogether. He, he hits on it right there at the beginning, but then it, it looks like he's just going on to something else altogether. But all of this is going to tie into a much bigger picture for us. Paul starts with married people living as if they aren't married, and then he goes to mourning people living as though they're not mourning and rejoicing people, and then consumers as if they had nothing, and then finally those who deal with the world as though they didn't have any dealings with it. So why is he talking like this, and why is it here in the middle of this passage? It doesn't seem to fit. But if we look at that last sentence of verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away, it, it kind of rounds it out for us. And, and this is the last of our three phrases that we're focusing on in this passage. Okay, the first one, again, let me go through them. Present distress, the appointed time has grown very short, and the present form of this world is passing away. So what, what Paul is saying is that the, the marriage question that was asked isn't necessarily the right question. It's not a bad question per se. It's, it's just not the most important question. Each of these three phrases points to the fact that this world and our lives in it are very temporary. We are a mist that is here for a while, and then it vanishes. Paul is pushing the Corinthians to look past the temporal and to look at the eternal, while simultaneously seeing that the eternal deeply affects the way we approach the temporal. Paul is breaking down far more than just marriage. He's, he's developing several categories for us to look at uh, in light of eternity. And I'm stealing these categories from a pastor named Alistair Beggs because um, I think they're, they're really helpful categories to help us understand this passage. Hey, here are, the, here are the five categories. Relationships, he talks about marriage and singleness. Death, he talks about mourning, rejoicing, possessions, and the culture or dealings with the world. All right, let's take these in reverse order. culture, dealings with the world. We don't live our lives based on the whims of culture at large. We live in an alternate culture. The church is an alternate culture, one that is affected by fixing our eyes on Christ, on considering the reality of eternity as far greater than our temporary state, while at the same time knowing that the way that we engage with the culture right now matters. It matters for our own eternity as well as for the eternity of those who are held captive by the culture of this world. It means that we never, neither sell out to and follow the culture around us, nor do we wage war against the culture around us. We don't try to Christianize culture, and we don't try to syncretize Christianity with the culture. We tangentially have dealings with the world, but we don't live for nor are we defined by those dealings. It means that the, the changing winds of culture don't terrify us. They don't shake us. We don't run around going crazy when the culture around us heads in an evil direction. We don't run and hide in some proverbial storm shelter when the culture around us pursues depravity. But neither do we engage in that depravity. We live in the culture as a testimony to the one who redeems all culture for his own purposes. The same is true of possessions. We need possessions to survive, but our possessions don't define us. We are not, quote-unquote, worth the sum of our assets as the world would have us believe. Instead, we use the resources and the possessions we have for eternal purposes. We don't 
hoard wealth so that our kids don't ever have to work. We use whatever wealth we have for kingdom eternal purposes. And in doing so, we teach our kids to see wealth and work from an eternal perspective as well. When Paul says that we rejoice as those who aren't rejoicing, he isn't saying that we don't, we don't ever rejoice. He's saying that our rejoicing on earth should be seen from the perspective of eternity as well. Temporal rejoicing is fine, but we can't sell our eternal souls to gain temporal rejoicing. It's really easy. It's so easy to pursue a life of ease and happiness, but that can so easily lead us to live a life of worldly hedonism and debauchery. We rejoice and enjoy life when it's appropriate, but we don't live for the pleasure of temporal rejoicing, nor do we mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn, yes. In fact, we are commanded to mourn with those who mourn, but we mourn as those who have our eyes fixed on an eternal Jesus, a Jesus who gives hope to the hopeless, a Jesus who makes everything sad come untrue, who will one day wipe away every tear from every eye, a Jesus who makes all things new. You see, Paul is systematically dismantling what we would refer to as the American dream. The American dream should not be the pursuit of followers of Jesus. Jesus should be the pursuit of followers of Jesus. We don't live for this world or for the things of this world. And that brings us back to where we started, back to, back to marriage. But let's notice something first. These categories that Paul lays out are at worst morally neutral. Most of them are even good things when viewed rightly but none of them are what we live for. None of them are ultimate. Let's look at the next section. Verse 32 through 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So now that Paul has sufficiently deconstructed the American dream, he returns to the question at hand. Should we marry or not? And here's his answer. Be undivided in your devotion to the Lord. That's going to be easier if you remain unmarried because you won't be confronted with the inevitable anxieties and additional considerations that come from being married. That's part of the good gift of singleness. You are unrestrained by marital or family obligations. As a married man, myself, if I want to move across the country or, or even just across town, I better talk to my wife before I make a move like that. It's not okay for me to make unilateral decisions like that. I am not some lord of my house who just does as I please without regard for my family. You don't have those same considerations if you're, if you're single. And that's just one example. Some things are just going to be easier for you if you're single. You can just ask the, the spies in those movies that I was talking to at the beginning, talking about at the beginning. 
Now, this is what Paul's saying in verse, back in verse 7 uh, of 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And here's what Jesus said about marriage in light of eternity. I think this frames it really well. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Don't get, don't get too caught up in like angels in heaven. That's, that's for another sermon. But marriage between a husband and wife is temporal. No matter how good or how bad your marriage on earth is, you're not going to be married to your spouse for all eternity. The church will be married to Jesus for all eternity. And that perspective of eternity must influence the way we view our lives on earth. That's why Paul was taking us there. So here's how we need to view marriage. Neither marriage nor singleness are holier than the other. And neither marriage nor singleness are the goals of our lives. Moving on, verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. All right. These verses here are really challenging. I'm just going to be upfront and honest. These verses are hard. Even the translators of this don't agree. They don't agree on, on even who this passage is talking to. In the ESV translation, the, the translation we're using right now, uh, it seems that um, Paul is talking to an engaged couple, a betrothed couple. In other translations, these verses are addressing the father of the family who is he's considering the marriage of his aging daughter. And if you look in other translations, it, it, will, it will reference that. And so... Remember the stigma of Roman society around singleness and childlessness. It would make sense that a father would want to avoid both the tax associated with an unmarried daughter and the side-eye glances that he'd get in the public square. I tend to think, this is, this is my, my personal take, I tend to think that the context and the language of this passage favors the opinion that Paul is speaking to fathers in this way. And if that's the case, he's telling the fathers really the same thing he's been saying throughout the whole passage. He's telling them singleness is better because it's going to be easier for the man and the woman to remain undivided in their devotion to the Lord. But it's also good for them to get married. So basically, he's telling fathers, don't, don't let the pressure of the world control what you want for your children, what you want for your daughter. Don't, don't let the, the pressures of the world collapse in on you. On the other hand, if, if the correct translation is um, addressing the engaged couple, then really Paul's saying the exact same thing. Singleness is a gift from the Lord. It's better to remain sig single, but it's not sinful to get married. At the end of the day, keep yourself unstained by the world and be undivided in your devotion to the Lord. Now, it would be really easy to get bogged down in all of the details of this. Full disclosure, as I was preparing this sermon, I got, I got stuck in the weeds for a while. I got bogged down in these details. But 
as I, as I started talking through this passage with Brian, it, it was really helpful in helping me get out of those weeds and see the overall flow of the passage and the, and the message Paul was driving home. And I'm going to go down this rabbit trail for just a minute because I, I think it's really helpful for us. When we're looking at scripture, it can be really easy to go in one of two directions. We can either become hyper-literal and get lost in the strictest interpretation and every cultural nuance, and we can completely miss the point of the passage— or we can go the other way and fail to consider the context and become far too liberal with the text and just, just make it say whatever we want it to say. We have to hold these texts in context in both the cultural context and the larger biblical context. And we have to remember that the Bible isn't just a, a handbook for how to live our lives. It's not, quote unquote, basic instructions before leaving earth. It's God's revelation of himself to us. It is the story of God's redemption of fallen man for his glory and for our good. And so every part of the story is going to point to that, to the person and work of Jesus. And that's what Paul's doing in this entire section. He's saying that marriage was created for man, not, for, not man for marriage. And ultimately, marriage and singleness are both given as gifts for us to use to honor and glorify God. And we pursue King Jesus as the ultimate and final bridegroom of the church, his bride. One other small rabbit trail before we move on. I'm going to pull back the curtain on sermon prep a bit for you guys. There's rarely a week that goes by that Brian, Kevin, and I don't, don't talk through portions of the text that we're working on. There's so much to be gained from studying the Bible in community. And we know that the three of us are a safe place for each other. There are times we talk about a passage and everyone's in full agreement and we are encouraged by our unity. There are times when we disagree, but we wrestle with the text deeply and we come away enriched and encouraged. And there are times where one of us may just be dead wrong. We may be completely missing it in the interpretation. It's usually me. We may, have, we may have leaned too far one way or the other. And when we bring those ideas out into the open, we put them all on the table, we're able to, to receive a gentle correction from brothers. Regardless of the situation, each of us grows in profound ways when we're able to discuss the word of God together. If you're not doing that, if you're not digging into the word on your own and then bringing your understanding of the text together to be considered and wrestled with and either uh, affirmed or corrected or even just discussed, even if there is no clear resolution, then both you and the body as a whole are missing out on profound blessings. All right, end of rabbit trails, back on track. Marriage for the sake of marriage will create unnecessary consternation for your life. Neither marriage nor singleness are sinful. And if they were, Paul's instruction to us would have been much stronger. But in the absence of sin, we should pursue what is of most value from an eternal perspective, not what is either most beneficial or just even least painful from a worldly perspective. For many, that will be a committed married life. For others, It'll be a satisfied single life. Both are good gifts from the Lord. 
The matter in question really goes back to chapter 6, verse 12. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Let me elaborate a bit. This is where things are going to get a little dicey. Brian talked in chapter 6 about being dominated by things. And I want to bring that into this conversation. I'm going to do it in two different ways. The first one's pretty obvious. Don't be dominated by an obsession with either getting married or staying single. Neither of those define who we are, and neither in any way contribute to our value as image bearers of God. Neither of those things should be life-defining pursuits. So don't be dominated by either of those pursuits. The point I want to hit on a bit more is this. We can be dominated by this in another way. And it's highlighted in our culture by an idolatry of the nuclear family. Maybe we could call it a hyper-focus on the family. In other words, we have become dominated by marriage and family. Paul just told those who are married to live as though they weren't married. Now, Paul is absolutely not saying that we should abandon our spouses or neglect our families. That's not where he's going. He's already dealt with that issue. Abandonment is grounds for divorce, and God hates it when a person abandons, neglects, or oppresses their spouse or their family. In Ephesians, Paul actually tells husbands and wife to submit to one another. He tells husbands to love their wife as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. If you're married, God wants you to be committed to your spouse. He designed marriage so that two would become one flesh. There is no more intimate human relationship. But you don't set aside your devotion to the Lord because you get married. Instead, you now work to build one another up to pursue maturity in Christ together that you may both flourish in the work of the ministry that you've been given. And when you have kids, you together with your spouse work to bring your entire family along in the ministry that you've been given. In other words, your kids don't dominate you or your schedules. Your marriage and your family don't dominate you. None of this can be central in your affections. Instead, you submit your marriage and your family to the Lord for his purposes. Your marriage and your family and your kids cannot bear the weight of becoming your idol. Now, there is something unique about God's design for family. I'm not going to discount that. Like, like marriage, family gives us a picture of what the, the body of Christ is supposed to be. I'm not trying to negate that. And, and there are times to pull away as a family, uh, to, to invest in one another, to devote time in building one another up as a family. And just like your goal as a single person should not be to burn yourself out in service to the Lord, the goal is not to burn your family out in service to the Lord either, or to neglect your family for your personal service to the Lord. It's not where I'm going with this. God created Sabbath for man that we may know that we are not God and we have need of rest and our families need rest. But what if 
instead of segregating our family from our service to the Lord, we understood that a big part of investing in family that we so easily miss is doing ministry together as a family. I'm not talking about an occasional service project here or there. What would it look like if our families, and I mean the families here at Redeemer, were intentional both in our church and in our community, and we sought to connect with others and show biblical hospitality to them? What about not just the the people that we sit around at, at baseball or soccer games, but those here in Stillwater who, who desperately need biblical hospitality, who desperately need relationships with healthy families. See, we love to point the finger at the breakdown of families as, as the problem that creates all the other problems in society. We'll blame, oh, the, yeah, they don't have a, a healthy family, so that just explains all of their problems. We blame impoverished communities for their own problems and say they just need to get together and have these solid nuclear families. but we don't want to bring our families into those environments in ways that may help them see the attractiveness of the family of God. What might it look like if our families engaged with singles or young marrieds in our community? If we were a safe place for people to belong and they knew it? What if families in the church treated singles in the church like families, like family, instead of treating them as, as, someone who just needs to find the person that completes them or is free babysitters? What if he really didn't segregate by singles and young marrieds and kids at all? What if we in the church were all really family? And what if we treated the world the same way we in the church want to be treated? What if we welcomed in whoever would accept our hospitality as honored guests? in our family? What if we went out and actually sought them out like Jesus told us to? Luke 14 says this. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I feel that too often we're dominated by our marital status and fail to be undivided in our devotion to the Lord. We're afraid that these people who we're supposed to be showing hospitality to will negatively affect our families, or will rob us of quality family time. Or maybe we're just not married and we don't have kids, so that that just doesn't really apply yet. I don't fit into those contexts and can't really engage in that type of ministry. Don't miss this. If you are in Christ, you have a family. So what if quality family time looks like serving the Lord together, either in your nuclear family or in your larger church family? And what if it looks like extending hospitality to those who can't give anything in return? 
What if it looks like supporting one another as we lay down our time and money and possessions for something that matters for the kingdom? What if it actually looks like living as if the Lord really is our hope for our families and not living as if we have to put up a border wall of protection to keep our families sheltered and safe and unstained by the world? What if it looks like all of us really treating the church as family? What if it looks like living as if the Lord, not our nuclear families, even healthy ones, is our hope? Paul's answer to this question about marriage or singleness is really pretty simple. That shouldn't be your primary focus. Focus on the Lord. It's probably easier if you're single, but for many, it's probably better that you get married so that you won't be constantly tempted by your passions. He's telling us the same thing as he did in Colossians 3. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's how this works. When we are pursuing Christ, when we experience the love of Christ, and the power of Christ, and the help of Christ, and the strength of Christ, we trust him more and love him more. And as we love Christ more, we love our neighbors more. And that means that we love our families more. It isn't an either or. We don't choose whether to love our families or love our neighbors. Our family members are our neighbors. Our families are good God-given gifts, and we should be committed to loving them. But loving our families doesn't mean just working more puzzles together or spending every waking moment pursuing fun things for our kids. There's nothing wrong with working puzzles together, doing fun things with the kids. That's not the point. But loving our families means wanting to see their lives matter for eternity. It means wanting to see them live purposeful, godly lives, fully dependent on Christ. It means your nuclear family realizing and fully enjoying their place as members of a much more inclusive family, the family of God. It means your family being engaged as family with the church in deep, meaningful, Christ-exalting ways. It means your family desiring that single members of the body not be alone, but are welcomed in as truly beloved and valued members of the body of Christ. It means you as a single, not isolating yourself or just pursuing fun things with other singles, but devoting yourself to the building up of the whole body. It means married couples without kids, not segregating themselves out and just doing things with other married couples, but seeking to serve the church and the community in full unity with the whole body. It means all of us corporately loving the body and pursuing the maturity of the full body of Christ. And that's why right in the middle of all of this, Paul reminds the Corinthians, I say this for your, your there is plural as in y'all's, I say this for y'all's own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. You're free in Christ. God created marriage as a good thing. So Paul's not telling Christians they shouldn't marry. What he's telling them is that they, they must obey the greatest commandment. They must give undivided devotion to the Lord. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if you divide it off yourself or your marriage, or your family time from pursuit of the Lord and love of neighbor. 
I can't segregate our lives. It may feel like I've been gone a little bit off topic here. I mean, wasn't, wasn't Paul just answering a question about whether or not we should marry? But that's, that's precisely the point. We have a tendency to segregate our lives. This part over here is for me, and this part's for the Lord. It causes us to ask the wrong questions. We ask, can I, or in this case, is it permissible? And Paul's going to keep pointing us to a better question. Is it helpful? Is it beneficial? And when he talks about being beneficial, he has eternity in mind. So when we're considering this question of marriage in this passage, the way that we have looked at our marriages or our singleness or our families is absolutely on the table. In many ways, I feel that we've, we've quit even asking any questions to the Lord about these matters of, at all. We just assume that the way we do marriage and family is best. We just kind of look for, for ways to enhance what we're already doing instead of asking the Lord, is this what you want? If we're honest, eternal significance isn't always something we consider in these matters. We weren't created for marriage or for family or for singleness. We were created for Christ. And Paul's going to close this out in consistent fashion. Verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the spirit of God. Marriage is bounded by death. It's not eternal. It's not ultimate. As I mentioned earlier, marriage is pointing to Jesus. One day there will be a wedding feast to end all wedding feast. It will be the wedding feast of the Lamb. And those of us who are in Christ will be not a guest at the table, but the bride. That day will be the culmination of all of redemptive history. When Jesus will receive his spotless bride that he, was, that he washed clean in his own blood that was shed for us. See, that's the wedding that we're all created to long for. If you're single, long for that wedding. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the bridegroom of the church, in whom all your longings will forever be satisfied. If you're married, strive to reflect the marriage of Christ and his church and prod one another along toward undivided devotion to Christ, while at the same time longing for your ultimate marriage that your marriage now is just a shadow of. Are you a widow or widower? You're free to remarry. You're also free to remain as you are. There is no guilt or shame in either choice. But remain steadfast in your undivided devotion to the Lord. I think that between last week and this week, it should be clear what Paul is most concerned with. He's not discarding our place in this world. He's not discarding marriage. He's not discarding work. He's trying to lift our eyes and all of it to eternity. He wants us to live where God has placed us, in the roles that God has placed us, in the relationships in which God has placed us, all in wholehearted, undivided devotion to the Lord. He wants us to live as the redeemed, as those who have been bought with a price, 
and therefore to honor God with our bodies. Whatever your lot in life, fix your eyes on the true and better, true and better bridegroom. Keep your gaze fixed on Jesus, knowing that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Be undivided in your devotion to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, such a weighty passage. We're thinking about our own lives and how we have, um, we've elevated things to positions that they, they don't need to be. And I'm talking about me. Father, I pray um, that you would transform our minds, that you would um, shine light into our hearts in areas where we have uh, idolized things that, um, put them in places they have no business being, that's actually crushing them and ourselves. Father, I pray that we would be undivided in our devotion to you, that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Father, do a work in us. Send your spirit to do a work in us. We can't do this on our own. Honestly, we don't even know what this looks like. Our culture tells us it's a completely different thing. Father, let us follow hard after you with undivided devotion. In Jesus' name, amen.